Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp playing, white sheet wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Um, I spoke, I don't know, a month ago or a bit more than that maybe, about um, creativity in the, in the first uh, book of Genesis, the first creation story, because there are two distinct creation stories from two distinct sources. And we're on the second one now. But when I was speaking about the first one, I was... Um, drawing out the theme that I believe we are all, in God's image, made as creative beings. And somebody pointed out at the end of that talk um, that actually dreams are evidence of this because we, we are, our minds write these stories. We work out what's going on with ourselves through stories that we make in our dreams, which I thought was a very compelling point that I'd share with you this morning. Um, and I have a, a theological question that was raised for me just this very morning, which is that um, are dogs therefore also made? Um, with this creative purpose, because if, you, if you're a dog owner, we're a dog owner, they dream. Yeah, they have stories going on, they run in their dream. This morning, I specifically felt like God spoke to me through watching my dog dream. Bear with me, bear with me. Um, I was praying about this talk. It's a pretty big one um, in terms of the things that we ever speak about. For me, it is anyway. And uh, my dog, I got up really early and my dog came and sat with me and he fell asleep at my feet. And um, in his sleeping state, he did for about two minutes um, what was clearly he was dreaming that he was drinking. He just lapped at my feet. He's, he's probably thirsty after a very hot day yesterday. He spent a lot of time in the sun yesterday. Didn't wake up and have a drink because he's a dumb dog. But um, it was interesting watch him. And I felt like God say was about how many ways that we try and quench this insatiable thirst that we have for truth and meaning. And as I speak about gender this morning, I think that we are all quite familiar with the ways in which culture is warring about truth and meaning as it pertains to gender. And I just felt like this was this encouragement to come back to what the gospel says about it, because ultimately... Um, this kind of water is the only thing that will quench our thirst. Perhaps a tenuous point to draw out from Ziggy's dream. Um, but to recap, if you have been with us for the last um, couple of weeks, we've been looking at this second creation story. So we've got the first one that's about the seven-day creation story, and then we've got this other one, which is this much sort of more detailed picture of um, Man and woman in the garden, woman created um, from man's side, a symbol of mutuality, and them together walking with God um, in the garden, the picture of this garden and, and how they relate to each other. Um, the 
phrase Lord God, which you will notice because it, it feels like it's put in a little bit more than it should be as I read um, from the passage this morning, um, is significant. Let's just start with that. Um, Yahweh, Elohim is both of God's names and it's really deliberately denoting this closeness as well as this bigness. So it's like the kind of intimate, intimate God and creator God. Um, so they're dwelling together and this is all great. But then as we got to last week, um, man and woman make this monumental decision to reach for more than the identity that uh, God has given them. And we have what is called the fall. And this week, we're looking at the punishment scene. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake, and God punishes all three of them. There is a decent amount of Hebrew context and meaning that we really need to navigate as we assess the implications of this story. And as we answer for ourselves, did God curse humanity? Do we suffer in this life as a direct result of his dissatisfaction with uh, our fallen state? Is there divine intention about the manner of our suffering according to our sex? It's just 16 verses, this little passage. But as origin stories goes, this one has not had a small impact on church history. So as we're going to see in a second, the snake is cursed to crawl on his belly and eat dust. The woman is punished with pain in her childbirth and to desire and be under the rulership of her husband. The man is punished with labor and toil as he sweats to produce food in the field. Three punishments, perhaps not entirely evenly weighted in the consternation they have called unless I have missed all of the Christian movements aimed at maintaining a dust-only diet for snakes, or uh, ones mandating that man can only eat from the ground when he is sweated over it. The final part of Eve's punishment is surely the one that's caused the greatest stir. And if you're unaware, um, this theological position is what's called complementarianism. It's a position that says God did create male and female to have different roles in the home, the church, and the world. And it is not just based on this chapter, obviously. There are various other roles of husbands and wives in the Old Testament that um, this theological perspective is drawn from. There's obviously Jezebel, let's never forget Jezebel. There's Delilah, there's all the other antagonist temptresses. And then we get to the New Testament and there's Paul. All of the Paul, all the cover your head, submit to your husband's not permitted to speak if you're a woman. Pauliness. The Council of Biblical Manhood, a council of uh, big-hitting evangelical college deans, professors, and pastors, male and female, stand at the helm of this. It's actually a reasonably prolific belief in church today. And it takes this stuff very, very seriously. It believes that scripture, the church, the family, and ultimately the gospel itself is at stake. We passionately agree that complementarianism is a biblical position. But one based on the very biblical description of humankind's fallen state, not our redeemed one. And this is hopefully what we're going to see and agree upon out of the passage today. And I would say to you, to take the time to read Paul's letters and delve into the cultural and historical context of those two, because what they show is that he was writing to a people as deep in their Roman and Jewish cultural worldview as we are in our 21st century American one today, trying to make sense 
of this utterly revolutionary way of Jesus within them. Reverend, uh, Reverend Double Cambridge Matters over there will always do a better job at helping you with the exegesis um, of these things than I will. It's good, isn't it? But for me, this conversation goes right to the core of my why over this church leadership thing. And it is a, a question of what am I doing this for again that I have asked a couple of times over the last few years. It is this one. It is this call for Ed and me to model in all our frailty and fallenness and fumbling, oneness and mutuality in leadership, to know that along with all the other partners that we have on our team, we bring different gifts, histories, perspectives, that they are all important, that this isn't a hierarchy, that there's no such thing as one kind of, one human that's better than another, that one is more equipped, more gifted, more asked to lead or speak than another more able to do any bloody thing in the kingdom of God than another. A model that seeks to lift each other up and gives ourselves away because there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> My encouragement to anyone who perhaps, for very understandable reasons, has chosen to disregard these confusing and troublesome bits of the Bible, is actually take the time to do it. I can, I can definitely help you with resources, because there are definitely resources that aren't, won't be helpful. But there is so much beauty in this stuff when we untangle it. So shall we do it now? Genesis chapter 3, from verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife <coughs> me, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Like, check out the double blame there. It's not only she did it, it's also you're the one who put her here anyway. <laughs> and then the Lord said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The snake did it. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you have listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, 
from dust you are until to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all living things. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, <clears throat> knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Since the dawn of time, or more specifically the dawn of communication, mankind, humankind, has taught and learnt through story. In fact, archaeology and anthropology agree that the human brain co-evolved with its capacity for storytelling. Stories activate the conditions in our brain um, that help support learning and remembering, which is why, of course, we teach our children through story. We teach them about danger and love and our history and what our humanity means through stories. And this doesn't change as we age. The data has it that the elements of this talk uh, that include any personal story will be the only things you can remember by tomorrow which is very encouraging, all the rest of the work that I've done on the rest of it. Um, and ask any writer, any actor, any historian, or any communicator at all. Story is how we create community. It's how we tell each other who we are. It's how we remember. It's how we feel part of something bigger. And the Hebrews were masters of it. As we have covered a few times before, there are loads of details that echo and respond to the creation stories of the Hebrews Mesopotamian captors. The Epic of Gilgamesh, disproving for anyone arguing that the patriarchy was Eve's fault, predates Genesis 1-4 by a millennia and a half. That story, which is history's oldest known story, describes a naked savage named Enkidu, who is initially at harmony with nature, but the harmony is destroyed when he is seduced by a prostitute who lures him to knowledge of good and evil, after which he is suddenly aware of his nakedness and is ashamed. Genesis 2 and 3 is an echo and a response, a response adapted to reflect on their king, King Solomon, as we have been looking at. The original audience was listening for this. Solomon was wise and godly like Adam. He created God's temple, bringing order and goodness like Adam. Like Adam, Solomon grasped for more, and both he and Israel collapsed as a result. The consequences of that fall was the present-day reality for the ancient Hebrews. This was a story answered, uh, sorry, written to answer specific questions, and I'm going to get to those in a moment but not to answer many of the specific questions that we have maybe inadvertently been taught to bring to this story. It is not intending to answer how did evil enter the world, was it all because of Adam and Eve, and really we mean Eve. The Jews in exile in the sixth century BC weren't even asking about the origins of evil and pain. They, like all humans who have ever lived, were just accustomed to evil and pain. Poisonous snakes and other wild animals would have been real problems in their day. The snake here, as we've looked at, is a dramatic player, the perfect emblem of relationship between man and beast, 
made for harmony, now at enmity. Women made from the rib, for partnership, for mutuality, and if you missed Rao's brilliant talk on that, you must go back and listen to it. Made for that, but now subjected, subjected to rule and to suffer pain. Women's roles were pretty simple in this day. Owned as daughters, bought as wives, tasked with motherhood and tribe growing. The miracle of life, without the miracle of modern pain uh, management, has always been tainted by excruciating pain. However, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe should actually be more accurately translated as I will make uh, your pains in child-rearing very severe. Getting pregnant and rearing was, for many women, punctuated by pain. It's estimated that something like one in three babies born in this time wouldn't have made it to their first birthday. And we don't have any actual data on maternal mortality rates, but it was probably something like 2%. So out of every 100 births, two women died. It's not a great professional risk statistic. I had the absolutely bonkers privilege of being present for my sister's labor and the birth of my niece a couple of months ago, uh, which wasn't the plan. Um, she came early, and it was incredible. And I have done the birth thing three times, so in theory, I knew what it involved. But really, being close up to it, I was so struck by just the gore of the whole thing, the incredible feat that it is. The point here is not about a divinely ordained female curse of period and labor pain. This is about the appointed order in life's roles for the Hebrews and all peoples throughout history being broken at their core. Similarly, a man's role in tribal antiquity to provide, to farm, to produce, what was supposed to be a harmonious relationship with creation is now characterized by hardship and frustration. Drought, <clears throat> pests, backbreaking toil. This was just the reality. Life as a sixth century BC Hebrew was brutal. This story isn't answering the how or the why, to them it just was. But this story does say a lot about the kind of God the Lord God is. It says your pain and your brokenness is never what God intended. What intend was intended was Eden. When God walked with his tselens, his divine images made as companions, made to enjoy exactly what the Trinity had, perfect created mutuality and oneness. Oneness with each other, with the garden, with God, and with self. Everything else in the Bible is to be understood in light of this Eden image of oneness. It has never been humanity's experience. The intended perfection has always been cracked and distorted on every level. An intimate relationship with God marred by our desire to be like him. A harmonious relationship with nature marred by enmity between humans and animals and all instances of natural disaster and crop failure and goodness only knows how to quantify the dumpster of climate change in Genesis terms. A whole and sure sense of self turned to shame. A mutuality with each other turned to blame and desire to dominate and control and hide ourselves from each other. If you have ever been 
truly blessed enough to experience the feeling of real nakedness with another human being. And I don't just actually mean physical, I mean like being able to share everything, even the stuff you think is gross, and to have that accepted and loved. It's a tiny taste of what this picture of oneness was always meant to be. That's what's been destroyed by the fall between the two image bearers. The immediate consequence is shame. That awful, painful feeling of the, the fear that our flaws and our unworthiness is being seen and the urge to hide it. But the punishments were never the end of this story. Before God expels them, he clothes them. Clothing is a <clears throat> pervasive symbol in Hebrew writing. Have you got me some water? Yeah, what a lovely a thing for you to have done. It's actually Raoul. Oh, thanks, Raoul. <laughs> Not even sure where to go with that. Thank you. Clothing is a pervasive symbol in Hebrew, Hebrew writing, and it's used to imply status. The fig leaves that the man and the woman use has a lot of meaning that we might not be aware of. Throughout the Old Testament, fig trees are used to symbolize Israel's prosperity and their standing with God. Jesus, of course, you remember in uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel, curses the fig tree that's outside Jerusalem because it isn't bearing any fruit. Israel wasn't being who Israel was meant to be. In Hebrew, the fig tree is called te'ena, which means to spread out and give protection. I don't know if I got that at all right, Nelly. <laughs> She'll correct me afterwards, I'm sure. Adam and Eve sewing fig leaves together like this is a metaphor for Israel hiding behind the law, a comment on all human endeavor to deal with the cracks ourselves. But the story points, along with all of the rest of these beautiful ancient scriptures, towards Jesus. Because what does God clothe them with? Tunics made of animal skins. To be clothed is a symbol mean to, meaning to be given life, and the verb used here is one reserved for kings and priests. The Hebrew word for tunic is ketanet. It's used only here, and for Joseph's coat, for Tamar's coat, and the tunics of fine linen that Levitical priests were instructed to wear. It has distinctly priestly, kingly implication. The fact that it's an animal skin points us ahead to the garment of righteousness, language used about the perfect life and sacrifice of Jesus. Even in this awful, messy punishment scene, the message is right here in this preemptive symbol of restoration coming. They are both covered. Their nakedness has been revealed, but Jesus will restore them to their divine image, to their previous status. Everything will be restored. Has there ever been a grander exercise in missing the point than reducing this beautiful redemptive story to one half of one verse? Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. There are a few notable exceptions in history of tribal reverence of female, of female workload being recognized as equal to male. But essentially, the universal power imbalance is one of the things that social anthropologists agree 
uh, is, can be used to conclude that there is something universal about mankind. For as long as mankind has existed in any kind of organized civilization, this has been the way. And we call it the patriarchy, the source of all evil, according to some, or simply evidence of male competence, according to Jordan Peterson. And if you've never heard of Jordan Peterson, do not worry about that. Don't Google him. You're happier now than you would be if you've ever heard of Jordan Peterson. Don't change that fact. <laughs> but if you have and you find him intriguing, he makes a very biblical point here about the nature of our fallen state. Hierarchies are millions of years old and we can't blame them on the West or on men or on capitalism. We are wired for hierarchical perception. We are in our flesh but not in our spirits, not as Christians. The patriarchy is the fall. Complementarianisms and biblical manhood and womanhood is drawn from the wrong story, the unredeemed story, the fallen story. It's theology drawn from the wrong flipping places. Male authority over women throughout most of historical civilization contradicts God's created order and perpetuates Adam and Eve's rebellion against him. The same way that any power abuse, any tribal conflict, any group being mocked or belittled or undervalued in any way perpetuates that rebellion. Because, of course, the patriarchy doesn't just harm women. Patriarchal hierarchies require all subjugated people and races as others to be dominated. Patriarchy and systemic racism and oppression walk hand in hand and they have done consistently throughout history. Patriarchal hierarchies also hurt men by giving them only this tiny narrow view of what it is to be a man, a totally false metric of what personhood should be based on. We are clear on our theological perspective on this stuff. We are clear that the Bible, that the gospel is here and inclusion, not as a buzzword, is a big part of it. Inclusion is a kingdom war cry. And we will keep going after the ones who need setting free and speaking favor to the dejected because that is what Jesus seemed to do. We are less clear on the how sometimes. You know, when um, Raoul and I first had a call with the guys who lead um, the fellowship, um, uh, thank you, Center for Racial Reconciliation uh, in Monrovia, who are these guys who we have been learning from um, because they've been doing racial reconciliation work within churches for years, and they're so wise and so lovely and so good. Do you know what the first thing they asked us was? You've been doing this work for a bit now. Tell us about the mistakes you've made. It does seem to be that in any way of reconciling people to each other, making mistakes is part of it. And you know what? It was so freeing to be asked that question. It was so freeing to tell, to, to bring these stories into light, to tell them exactly about the mistakes we've made. We made so many mistakes. And to have them go, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the club. You can't do this work without mistakes. We are less clear about the how of how we work this gospel vision out. 
what I have learnt at the start of every conversation or talk or course or thing that we do is to just acknowledge we are going to make mistakes with this, we're going to express things badly, we're going to follow some wrong thoughts, we're going to, we're going to get this wrong. And I am aware that just by talking about these things as a cis, straight, white woman, that I risk, uh, that I run the risk of triggering trauma for some people. I have possibly inadvertently said transphobic things. And I know that for other people in here, even using words like cis and straight and transphobic and the patriarchy is triggering the things that you don't like. I might just sound like another angry woman telling men it's all their fault. I am not. Sometimes I am an angry woman. <laughs> the bridge, or rather the divide between these sides seems more cavernous than ever, does it not? I have no idea what it is like <clears throat> to exist with dysphoria or a non-binary identity. I have no idea what it is like to read the story of Adam and Eve and comment on the patriarchy through any other lens other than mine. And frankly, there isn't time or space to explore what this passage has to say or doesn't have to say about the existence of gender as a binary. That is a much bigger conversation. It does seem like there are sexes in the created order here in this story and here in, you know, the reproductive and survival systems of most species. But gender, how can we possibly know what God created of gender in his created order and what has been culturally constructed? All the new neuroscience is suggesting that even as it pertains to the difference in brain structures and hormone production, that social environment on gender influences influence more than anything else. Blues and pinks, and crying like a girl and toughening up like a man. Forces that we're subject to as binary from the moment we are born. This is what's creating difference. And I would argue this is what's creating so much pain. Did you know that just a hundred years ago, uh, pink was for boys and blue was for girls because pink was seen as a stronger color? That was true until the 1940s. All of this stuff is culturally created. Do you know about Jesus? He did not do a whole load of affirming the culturally created gender constructs of his day. He was viscerally emotional. He consorted with all sorts of women they shouldn't have. He taught them, which he shouldn't have. He was friends with them, which he shouldn't have been. He let them touch him. He even let them anoint him. None of this was anything other than offensive to the gender customs of his day. Jesus' attitude to gender roles was nothing short of revolutionary. Imagine what it would have been like, as a woman, the gender outsiders of their day, to be greeted by this prophet and teacher, who never patronized them, never flattered them, never mapped out their domains for them, or made jokes about their lack of education or about their demeaning roles. He never urged them to be more ladylike. He had no ax to grind wasn't worried about propriety or uncomfortable with how things looked to other people. He had no uneasy male dignity to defend. Jesus sees all of us for who we are and he has words of life for us. I am sorry 
for the ways in which the church has perpetuated the world's fallen story about your gender, whether that's as a male or a female or your own sense that you never fit into either of those categories. It has hurt me too, and I am still recovering. But I'd love to share the best advice that I ever got with you. It was to hear the voice of God, my parent, not as a daughter as opposed to a son, because my personal recovery was very much about a belief that um, it was just less to be a girl than it was a boy in God's eyes. But to just see myself as his child, to detach all the feminine traits from that, no more grasping at the masculine things as I saw them, no more being pissed because I got invited to the girls' group that went for afternoon tea rather than the men's group that went for whiskey and cigars, which is way more where I'd rather be. <laughs> just to let it go. To just be me. Just me and Jesus. Me being me. Not all my prescribed by gender gifts and traits and weirdnesses. Just me. And you know what happens when we receive this love? When we truly start to believe that God is part of the solution rather than part of the problem, is it sets us free to give it to other people. It sets us free to not be part of the angry people, the fearful people on either side. So that is what I would love us to do now. Tarver, I don't know if you want to come and... I'd love to invite you to stand.